Lord, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we would hear with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. I'm going to read something to you. Let's see if you recognize it. Young child with dreams, dream every dream on your own. When children play, seems like you end up alone. Papa says he'd love to be with you if he had the time. So you turn to the only friend you can find there in your mind. You know this song? Shiloh, when I was young, I used to call your name when no one else would come. Shiloh, you always came and you'd play. 1967, Neil Diamond wrote this song and his publisher, his agent, they said, no, this is not the song that people want from the rock and roll and Neil Diamond, which may not be the way you think of him, but that's who he was in the 1960s. And they didn't want to publish it. What was he writing about? He was writing about a lonely kid who didn't have friends around. And the only friend that he could find was one that he found in his mind, an imaginary friend that apparently he named Shiloh. Neil Diamond is honest about this being an effectively autobiographical song. Mr. Diamond was the descendant of Jewish immigrants who had come to the United States. He was born in Brooklyn, but his father was in the military and he traveled around a lot. They were in Kentucky. Uh, later, I think they were in Wyoming. A Brooklyn kid of Jewish immigrant parents probably felt pretty left out in Kentucky and Wyoming in the 1940s and 1950s. And so he was often a kid who was alone without a friend. And a dad in the military was a dad who wasn't always around. Papa said he'd love to be with you if he had the time. So you turn to someone somewhere that could be with you. Why do I reference this? Well, for one thing, it's because of the name that Neil Diamond gave to that imaginary friend. I don't know why he chose Shiloh, but I do know that with his Jewish roots and the influence of, uh, of, of his exposure, not only to the Jewish scriptures, but in living and growing up in the Bible Belt to also Christian culture, he was no doubt familiar, whether he was uh, consciously aware of it or not, of the biblical place of Shiloh. Shiloh was a city in ancient Israel. It's about 20 miles north of Jerusalem, was near to Samaria, was part of the northern area of Israel at the time. And you may remember from our study of the scriptures and our study of the book of Judges that Shiloh was a place where there was a tabernacle of the Lord. Remember, these are in the days before the kings of Israel. When, as you have heard me say, as we've quoted from the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no all-commanding king. There were judges that the Lord would lift up and anoint by his spirit for periods of leadership in the midst of the country, in various different regions, in, in, in tribal groupings, and they would deliver Israel from opponents and oppressors that surrounded them for a while. Over and over again, what would Israel do? The people of Israel would give themselves back to the kind of idolatry that was common in their era. And quite frankly, it's a kind of idolatry that is still common in ours. People trying to figure out how to get what they want out of life 
by using the things that they think will give it to them. In those days, they thought that idols and, and household gods could give it to them. But those idols were made of gold, and those gods controlled things like fertility and weather. And so today, you can see people who fig feel like if they can get enough money, or if they can get the right job, or if they can get the right degree, or if they can get enough attention from people on, on, on Instagram or TikTok, uh, does anybody have attention on TikTok? I don't know. If it's less than 30 seconds, I don't know how you can call that attention, but it's attention. If you want to be an influencer, you only can influence people for 30 seconds or less, I guess. People feel that there's power in that, but let me say something else. The power of that can be idolatry. I'm not saying you should never look at TikTok. I'm saying if those are the things that are driving our lives, if those are the things that are fixing our focus, those are often the things that become idols to us. And then we live our lives according to the values that those idols dictate to us, according to the patterns of how those things influence us. And we can become deaf to the things of God. But in Shiloh, there was a house of God, a tabernacle established for people to come and pray. It was a place where people, as we do here, would come and worship, where people would give of their resource and money, where people would make their focus on the word of the Lord and the things of God. And if there were people who were lonely and lacking, if there was someone who looked at their life and said, my life is not being all that it is meant to be, and my work is not producing all that it is meant to produce, or if you were a woman like Hannah, who so desperately wanted to have a child, but she had to say, my womb is not producing children, then you could come to Shiloh and you could come to the Lord and you could call upon him. And when no one else would come, Shiloh, you always came and you'd stay. Shiloh, what does it mean? We're not so sure. It's this interesting ancient Hebrew term rooted in the language. Way back in the book of Genesis, remember the man named Israel, also called Jacob, blessed his 12 sons. Oh, it's, this is the time when I give a plug for PSOM. In August, I'm going to do a class, the 12 sons of Israel. You can learn all about those 12 sons. You can learn all about those 12 tribes because their stories matter. Well, when he was blessing his sons, in his blessing, his deathbed blessing, he mentioned Shiloh. Until Shiloh comes, he said. And it seems to me, it seems to mean, I should say, a peacemaker or one who is peace. The coming of the one who brings peace. From the Christian perspective, it is generally interpreted as the coming of the Prince of Peace. In other words, from the beginning, there is this promise from God to people in need. And the promise is this, if you will come to me, I will give you life. If you are in need, if you have a lack, come to me and I will fill you up. Call on me. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Shiloh means. And maybe beyond just an imaginary friend, maybe somewhere in the soul of Neil Diamond, maybe somewhere in the soul of us all, there's a recognition that when we call on Shiloh, 
we're calling on God. And when no one else can hear, and when no one else can help, God is always there. At least that's the kind of faith that Hannah had. And you know what? That kind of faith takes patience. Because while God hears and while God answers, he doesn't have to do it on our timeline. Have you ever noticed that? Anybody ever had to wait on the Lord? Yeah, you can raise your hand. It's okay. He's not going to be offended. He knows. Now, here's where you don't want to raise your hand. Has the Lord ever had to wait on you? Because he's waited on me an awful lot. And sometimes it's the things that we are forced to wait for that finally wake us up to the reality that God is waiting on us. That even though we think that God needs to do something, God is trying to draw our attention to the fact that there's something he wants us to do. And very often what that is, is to focus on him and to find out what his priorities are. So here in the case of Hannah is a classic situation that recurs again and again in the scriptures, and we'll look at it today, a closed womb. In other words, she struggles with infertility. Now, it is common in our contemporary culture to bristle a bit against the idea that the totality of a woman's value and significance is related to her ability to give birth. And I want to make clear something. That's not what this story is saying. And that's not the intent of the scripture. But it is important to recognize that we're looking at the story of a real woman who lived at a real point in time. And whatever you and I may think about that point of time, the reality was that people didn't have careers then. They were working to survive. And there was a division of labor in most um, economies of households, whereas men had the strength and the ability to go out and work in the fields and were never going to be limited by any kind of monthly cycle or by any periods of having to give birth and raise children, men could not proliferate the family alone. No surprise. Men cannot reproduce alone. Now, neither can women. But women had this capacity then as now to give birth. And of course, you can't give birth and then go out and work in the fields. And so the household, the family, was dependent upon the ability of a woman to give birth because not only was that the way in which the love and the life of that family could expand, but it was also the way in which those parents would be provided for. There was no social security in ancient Israel. There was no 401k. Your children would provide for you. And if you had none, then you had a very bleak future ahead of you. But there was also this other sensibility in ancient Israel that is embedded in the scripture, which goes all the way back to the beginning, in the garden, with the creation, when God gave a command, and the command was not a compulsion that was intended to be limiting or oppressive, but was in fact a promise that was prophetically, powerfully purposeful, and the command was this, be fruitful and multiply. Will you say that phrase, be fruitful? Be fruitful. Say it again as though it's a good thing. Be fruitful. The first time around, it was like, be fruitful. You know what fruitful means? Multiply. Look at your bank account. Would you like to divide it or multiply it? You want it to be fruitful. Do you want your bank account to be barren or do you want it to be fruitful? 
You wanted to expand and compound, right? In your workplace, do you desire for your work to be fruitful or to be barren? Do you want it to produce good results that multiply and compound and, and, and bring about blessing or not? We want to be fruitful. And what Hannah realized was in her life, her sense of her own greatest desire for fruitfulness was deeply tied to her maternal desire to give birth to a child, and she could not. Now, I want to make a, a, a point here because I don't want half the room to turn off. I don't want dudes to think, well, forget uh, this story because it doesn't relate to me. Because whether you have a womb or not, you have a place in your life that only God can fill that you have, whether you know it or not, a deep desire to see fruitful. Because that's how God made us. Men and women both, all people alike, have a desire for their lives to mean something and to be about more than just themselves. And so when you're hearing the story of Hannah, if you're a woman who already had your children, or if you're a man and you're never going to give birth in your own body to a child, let me say there is still a relevance to the notion of a closed womb as a problem that can lead you to God. I want you to think in your mind right now about whatever it is in your life that is not being fruitful and you would like it to be. Where is the place in your life that is meant to be open and flowing and producing of good and loving and, and, and fruitful things that right now is dormant? Because that's the womb of life that God wants to touch today with fruitfulness. It may be that that's a place you don't want to think too closely about because it may be that that's a place that burdens your soul, that hurts your heart, that leaves you feeling heavy, weary, doubtful. Maybe it's the dream of what your life would be, the destiny that you sensed in yourself or the brass ring of ambition that you set for yourself and as hard as you've tried to reach it, it's still somewhere just out past your fingers. Maybe it's a dream about something that you want to come to pass in your life, but like Hannah, who wants to become pregnant, it's not something that she can achieve by sheer force of will. There's no amount of skill. There's no amount of ingenuity. There's no amount of money that can make her pregnant. The only thing she can do is in desperation turn to God, to the author of life, and make her plea to him. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament letter to the Philippians writes in chapter 4 of that book, let your requests be made known to God. That's what Hannah does. She goes to Shiloh. She doesn't just ask God to come to her. She goes to God. She takes that step. She makes that journey. And she falls on her knees before the Lord in deep anguish and with desperate prayer and makes her request known and God hears and he answers. And when he gives her life in her womb, it is about more than just Hannah's plea. It is about Samuel's purpose. And it is also about deliverance for an entire nation. See, this is what I want to get at here. We talked about this a little bit 
from members of our ministry team who were in the meeting yesterday. What God is doing in you is always about more than just you. Now remember this. We said whatever dream or desire you have, if you're a human being, that dream or desire is really related to being about more than just yourself. It's about having an impact on the world. So here's good news. This is why we call this the gospel. God's desire to answer your prayers is about making you into something more than just yourself, but really into the person you are always meant to be in him, which is somebody who blesses the world by the power and the promise of God alive in them. There is a delight that comes to those who wait on the Lord when God answers and brings deliverance. I invite you to open to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and look with me at these uh, opening chapters. Here's the story of Samuel beginning with the story of his mother, and the story of his mother is told in the context of her family. There's a certain man, he lives in the hill country of Ephraim. You may remember that region from our studies in Judges and Joshua. His name was Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives. Now, by the way, here's a red flag, right? <laughs> remember, just because the Bible talks about something doesn't mean the Bible endorses something. When God made human beings, male and female, he made them. He put one man and one woman together together. God did not intend for there to be plural marriage in my view, although the Bible doesn't speak specifically to this in the Old Testament. But by the time we get to the New Testament, there is some good guidance on this. But the reality also was that by having multiple wives, a man and a family, both man and wife, were more likely to be able to produce the children, the resource, the infrastructure of support, that families from generation to generation needed in order to survive. You know, we forget these days just how volatile and insecure the natural world is. We live in the modern world, but it's really just a tiny, thin crust on top of this wild world. Have you ever watched one of those shows where people go out into the wilderness to live alone? I don't remember what they're called, but I've watched them. I just don't remember it because I'm getting old. But they go out and they, and they have to be totally solo and they, they tape themselves. So those, those people amaze me, right? But you see that. What are they doing? They're living 30, 40 days, 50 days, just trying to survive, just trying to eat and stay warm and not drown and not be eaten. The people of this era were living much closer to that reality. And as far as we think we've come from it, we're not that far from it. Boy, we'd be in trouble. Unplug a few plugs. Stop a few power plants. And where will we be? I'll tell you, you won't care that much about how many TikTok followers you have. If your sole purpose is, how do I survive? And so, people do better in numbers. Two are better than one. And a three-strand cord is not easily broken. So here was a threesome. And one was named Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Guess who felt better about herself in that arrangement? Is it right? Is that proper? No. But Hannah was being discriminated against by her sister wife, if you want to call it that. Year after year, this man would come up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at 
Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. And Hophni and Phinehas were priests there. Their father was Eli. He was the head priest. So there was a family of priests that served to the Lord there. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. We've seen this kind of situation in the family life before. And by the way, we may look at this disdainfully and say, oh, can you imagine that there's men with two wives in these Bible? But we have mixed families today. We just use different terminology. But there's lots of people who have children with multiple partners and have to find ways to get that arrangement to work out, and it's complicated. There's love, but there's also the practical realities of tension and stress that can arrive between people when there is a sense of competition or who's getting the most attention or who's getting the most resources. Elkanah wanted Hannah to know, I love you. And and I know that you're struggling with something that you can't help and I don't blame you for it. And I want to show you and I want to show also the rest of my family, my other wife and my kids, that you are important to me and to God. And so he gave her additional portions of the meat. But the Lord had closed her womb. This is maybe one of the hardest things that we find in the story. Wait a minute, God had closed her womb. I thought, Pastor Court, that you were just saying that God wants to open the womb, that God wants us to be fruitful. Recognize that what the scripture is saying here is that there was a natural circumstance that she encountered in her life, which was she wasn't able to conceive children. And what the scripture is implying here is God had a purpose in it. God was aware of it. Yes, it's not beyond God's power to change, but there was a timeline. There was there was something in the process that God wanted to do. So now, how about you and I? Do we ever come to God and say, look, this dream is not coming to pass. This prayer is not being answered. This situation is not being resolved. And I've prayed to you and I've prayed to you and I've prayed to you about it. And, and, and you're doing it to me. Because you could change it and you haven't. Maybe God has a purpose. Maybe, oh no, he wants to develop patience in you and me. I don't care about patience, I want this. Yes, exactly. But what if you began to care about patience? Because God cares about patience. Because patience is a virtue. When Jesus expressed healing power flowing from him, he said, I feel virtue flow from me. Patience is power when it's connected to God, when it's focused on God. God had allowed this circumstance in her life because God had a victory ahead for her. Now, because of this, Hannah's rival, her co-wife, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. She wasn't a very sensitive woman, this Peninnah. This went on year after year. And whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until Hannah would cry and weep and she wouldn't even be able to eat. And then her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Again, I hear the echo, even though it's a precursor in time to Jesus's words to the disciples that we mentioned earlier in this series, the resurrected Christ saying, why are you afraid? Why are you worried? And here Elkanah is saying to her, I love you. Isn't isn't that enough for you? 
He's not trying to be dismissive, I don't think. I, I think this is a sensitive man. I think the scripture indicates that he's sensitive to her. I don't think he's saying, what's the problem with you? Get over it. Eat something, for God's sake. Stop crying. I don't think that's Elkanah. I think Elkanah realizes, if I could change this for you, I would. No one would be happier for Hannah to give birth than Elkanah. He also wants to father a child with her. But what can he do? And so he's saying to her, it's all right, but I love you anyway. It's not ever going to change my love for you. And don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? This story is not just Hannah's story. Because over and over again in the earliest stories of Scripture, we see this. Barren women actually very close to the center of God's story about fruitfulness for humanity. Isn't this curious that when God works in human history to demonstrate how it is that he wants to draw people to himself and restore life to them and make life fruitful in and for and through them, he uses barren women in powerful roles of influential symbolic stories to teach us about how when we come to God, we are being called to believe the unbelievable, that a woman who has never been able to give birth before is suddenly able to conceive. And right back at the roots of Israel, which is to say at the roots of the church, the roots of the people of God, you see in our great, great grandmothers of the faith, these matriarchs of the faith, they are consecutively women who struggle to give birth. Sarah, who was the wife of Abraham, is barren until she is 80 years old. You say, it's unbelievable that an 80-year-old woman could give birth and a 90-year-old man could be the father. It's unbelievable, except that it happened. And she gave birth to Isaac. She found it laughable. That's why she named him Isaac. Isaac means laughter. But God said, you're laughing now when I tell you this promise, but I'll get the last laugh because my promise is true. And it happened. And then she laughed with joy. And Isaac was born. But Isaac married Rebekah, and Rebekah struggled to conceive. But then, when Isaac prayed for her, God heard her and him, and she gave birth to twins. Oh, those twins. They were wrestling in the womb. Esau and Jacob. Jacob married more than one woman, not actually by choice. His uncle tricked him into it. And so those wives also were rivals. And Jacob particularly loved Rachel. That was the woman that he wanted from the start. And Rachel was not able to give birth. And her sister, Leah, was constantly provoking her about it and humiliating her about it because Leah gave birth to lots of children. And if you take 12 sons of Israel with me, you'll hear all about that story. But finally, the Lord smiled upon Rachel. She gave birth to Joseph. We saw his story earlier in this series. She ultimately also gave birth to Benjamin. And sadly, she died in giving birth to Benjamin, which is a reality that far too women, far too many women have had to experience. We, can easily forget how very dangerous childbearing can be, even in the modern world, but especially in ancient times when modern medicine was not available to people. And yet, even in the sorrow of her death, Rachel rejoiced at the life that God had given her, the life of Benjamin. There is a woman in the story of the judges. Unfortunately, we don't know her name, but she was the wife of Manoah. You'll remember from last year's series that she also had never given birth. And then the angel of the Lord, a Christophany, appeared to her, and she conceived Samson, one of the strongest judges of ancient Israel. Now, the story of Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, and she will give birth to Samuel. But even after her, 
in the era of the kings and the prophets. There's a Shunammite woman, a contemporary of the prophet Elisha, who also cannot conceive. And Elisha prays for her and blesses her and God opens her womb. So throughout the Old Testament, we have these uh, six barren women who cannot conceive until God opens their womb. And every single time, it's a miracle that testifies not only to God's faithfulness, but to their faith. Let me say it again. In his eternal word, God wants to acknowledge these women and say, look at them. I'm proud of them for how faithful they were. Even if Sarah laughed, she still believed. She still held on. And so you and I, sometimes our faith may falter. Or maybe we would say about ourselves, I'm not sure I am a person of faith, but let me tell you something. God believes in you. He believes in you as a person of purpose. He's got a plan for you. And even when you falter, and even if you doubt, God doesn't falter. God doesn't doubt. But he is calling you and I to look at the places of barrenness in our life and open to the possibility that he might be the one to open us to new life. In the New Testament, the story of the New Testament essentially begins with this same symbol. That's why I'm saying it's so important. It's a message from God to all of humanity. And the message is this, apart from me, you can do nothing. These are the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. They are the words of God to all human beings. Disconnected from me, you can never be fruitful. But if you abide in me, If you come and live in me, I will come and live in you. Jesus is saying, believe it or not, man, woman, Jesus is saying, I want to impregnate you. Maybe that sounds almost profane to you. Hear the reality of the word because it isn't. I'm not saying it lightly. And it it, it is actually the most sacred thing. Jesus is saying, I want to take up residence in your life. I want to give my life to you. I came, said Jesus, that you might have life and have it multiplied. I came so that you could be fruitful and multiply that life in the world around you. And so Elizabeth, an elderly woman married to the priest Zacharias, is not able to conceive until the angel Gabriel appears to her husband and tells her husband, your wife Elizabeth is going to give birth to a child. And the child that she gives birth to is a child like Samuel. He becomes a prophet, John the Baptist, and a prophet who says, my role is to say, make ready the way of the Lord. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. And that voice is saying, Jesus is coming. Let him come to you. And indeed, Elizabeth's cousin is not a barren woman. It's not just unbelievable what happens to Elizabeth, Elizabeth's cousin. It's literally inconceivable. God now provides the culminating greatest miracle of all, a virgin, a woman who's never had intimate relations with any man, gives birth to the Son of God by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. Mary, the wife of Joseph, gives birth to Jesus, the Son of God. I'm going to come back to the relevance between Jesus and Mary with Hannah and Samuel in a few moments. But let's return to where we left Hannah, which is a place on her knees and a place in despair, a place desperate for God's help. 
So here they are at Shiloh once again. It's that annual time when they come there to the tabernacle to worship the Lord according to the feasts and festivals that were laid out in the word. And Hannah has finished eating and drinking. And Eli the priest, the head priest, is sitting there on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. He's just sort of lazing the day away while people are performing their acts of worship. He's not attending to her too much. It seems to be that she's alone. She's come back. She's come into this intimate place of the sanctuary to pray alone. I remember when I was in college, I was living in New York City, and uh, I had to walk 20 blocks or so to get from my uh, apartment to where I was going to school in the East Village, and I was walking by a church on Lower Broadway. It's actually Grace Church of New York. Beautiful stone church, high steeple. And it was a time in my life when I was feeling very alone. I, I guess I could really relate to Neil Diamond looking for a friend named Shiloh in that point in my life. I was older, but I was alone. And I felt so isolated. And I also felt disconnected from the dreams and purposes that I thought I had for my life, which just seemed to me to be evaporating and impossible. And anyway, let's put it this way. I was depressed. And I remember walking by that church and walking by that church and, and sensing this draw, go in there, go in there. And I thought, I don't know that church. I'm not a member of that church. I didn't even know what kind of church it was. I didn't even know if the doors were open. But I remember one point, I was just desperate. I was so tired of being tired. I was so sad about being sad. I was so depressed about being depressed that I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen. I went up to the door and I tried it, just expecting that it's going to be locked. I'm just going to look like a stupid fool. Not that anyone on Lower Broadway would care because... I mean, you know, somebody was urinating down the street, so they're not going to care if I'm trying to open the door, right? Sorry, maybe that was more information than you wanted, but the door opened, and I went inside. It was quiet. It was dark. It appeared to be empty, but it felt full to me. And the emptiness that I experienced was the emptiness within me. It's an old church. It has those wooden doors on the pews, little hinged doors, almost like going into a saloon, but instead I'm coming into the sanctuary of God. I walked through it. I sat down. Tears welled up in my eyes. I don't even remember particularly what I prayed. It was just, God, help. That's what Hannah's doing. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow. <laughs> a little problematic passage again. Are we really supposed to do this, Pastor? Do we make deals with God? Here's the transaction she lays out. Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Remember this? That also is like the child of Manoah and his wife, Samson, a Nazarite. In other words, I will dedicate him to you as a special servant for your purposes all of his life. Remember that I said that children were seen as a kind of a retirement plan for people. That may seem crass or cruel, but it was a reality. And what she is saying is, I would give that away to you. I'll give him away to you because what's most important to me is that I would fulfill this purpose that I believe you have intended for me from the beginning. Is it right to barter and bargain with God? The question is not whether it's right or not, but 
whether God will respond. If you think that you're going to be able to manipulate God into doing something that he doesn't want to do, think again. If you think you have anything to offer to God that doesn't already belong to him, think again. But if you think that God doesn't care when people come and say, I want this so much that I'm willing to give everything that is most valuable to me, to you, in order for you to do it, God cares. It doesn't mean that God is beholden to do it, but God cares because actually what God is always asking for from you and I is only simply this, everything. That's all God, that's all God wants. He wants everything. The bad news about that is you can give a lot without giving everything and God does not, not only does not God not want that, he despises it. Over and over again, God says, I don't care about all the money that you put into the coffers and all the animals that you sacrifice to me and all the praise on your lips and the prayers that you make because what I want is your heart. But when he finds someone with a broken heart who says, all I want, Lord, is for you to heal my heart. All I want is you to do what you have said you would do in me, God says, I agree. Let's shake on it. Let's seal the deal. I will seal it, says Jesus, in my blood. She kept praying, and Eli saw her. Maybe she's there keening, weeping, crying, and Eli is like, boy, here we got one of these drunk women. I'm sure there were plenty of drunk men that came in and prayed too. Her lips are moving, but her voice is not heard. It's that place of intense, intimate, sorrowful prayer. But Eli just thinks she's drunk. And he says to her, come on. How how long are you going to be drinking? Put away your wine, lady. Doesn't seem like a very sensitive priest, does he? (laughs) Eli doesn't show up so well in these stories, sorry to say. But she's respectful. She says, no, no, my Lord, you, you misunderstand. I'm deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine. I'm not drinking beer. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. Don't take me for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli's heart is touched. And he says, go in peace, shalom. And may the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went her way and she ate something. You see what this is? She starts to feel better. It hasn't changed her situation, but something's changed in her heart. That's what happened to me, by the way, that day when I went into Grace Church. I started to have hope. I went and looked at the back of the wall. I found out that there was a prayer meeting on Wednesdays. I went to it. A wonderful man named George Finger saw me and said, hey, I've never seen you here before. Would you like to come be a part of our cell group? And we had a Bible study that very night, and I started attending that church. It was a wonderful home for me in the time in which I was living in New York City. But even more than that, I had a sense of God's presence with me that has never departed me since that time. And so she has some hope. She's no longer downcast. And then the next morning, the whole family wakes up, they worship before the Lord, and they leave. They go back home. And Elkanah makes love to his wife. But this time, his wife conceives. The Lord heard her and remembered her. See, her prayer was, I feel like you've forgotten me. And so I'm coming to give everything of myself to you. It's not that she moved God It's that God allowed that problem in her life to move her towards him 
but he remembered her. The pastor, Robert Morris, recently uh, posted this to uh, Instagram and I think to uh, Twitter as well. I thought it's a, it's a relevant message. If you're waiting for a promise from God, it's important to know, listen, where, how, and why you need to wait. Will you say those three things? Where, how, and why you need to wait. Oh, nobody likes to wait, right? Where you need to wait is in relationship with God and with his people. Where does Hannah have her encounter? In the house of God, in Shiloh. Now, it's not that the geography or the construction of that edifice is what matters. It's that she comes to God and to his people. You're here today. You're streaming with us. You're watching the recording. Friend, you are connected to the body of Christ today as you worship together, as you hear this word. There's a family here that says, we want to stand together. We want to help one another. We're here to love. We're here to encourage, correct in love, always to connect in Christ. Where you need to wait is in relationship with God, in the scripture and in his word, in the house of the Lord with his people. How you need to wait is in prayer. And isn't that exactly what we see Hannah doing? Real prayer, not just words on her lips, but lips moving even without words because a heart is praying even as it's breaking. Pray from the bottom of your heart. If you don't know the words to say, just come and be there with him and let him, let Jesus be there with you. Why? Why you need to wait is because God is doing it for your good. Remember the passage that said the Lord closed her womb? He's doing it for her good so that he could open her womb. But more than that, open her heart, open her life, make her an open door to a legacy that goes far beyond anything she ever could have imagined. Friends, nothing can compare with God's timing. No matter how long you wait, if you're waiting on the Lord and the word is from the Lord, your waiting will be rewarded and God's timing will be perfect. When you are heard by God, there is nothing better. And God hears you at all times. Maybe what's best of all is when you know that God is hearing you and when you can show that you're trusting God. And so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because I asked the Lord for him. What does Samuel mean? Well, strictly speaking in Hebrew, Samuel means his name is El, which is a name for God. She's not saying her son is God. What she's saying is this child came from the one who is called God. His name is El. It's sort of like naming uh, your child, his name is Jesus. It's a way of her saying this child affirms the greatness of God. But there's something else kind of a funny little idiosyncrasy of ancient Hebrew here is that the phrase heard by God sounds also like Samuel. In other words, she says, this child was given to me by God. I asked for him and God heard me. And that's his name. God has heard. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, 
Hannah didn't go because she said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I'll take him, and then I'm going to present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Look at this. It is almost an echo of the call that God made upon Abraham, give your son Isaac to me. She's fulfilling it. She's saying, I'm going to dedicate my child to God just like I promised. It's not that she doesn't love him. It's that she loves him so much that she's going to dedicate him. After this service, we're going to dedicate a child. A child, by the way, whose middle name is rooted in the Hebrew for God has heard. Now only God could plan that. I didn't. What a wonderful day to dedicate a child on the day when we're hearing from the word of God that it is dedication of our lives to him that is often the arena in which we become most fruitful. And nothing could be more precious to us than our children. And therefore, nothing could be more expressive of our trust in God than to say, I trust my child to you, Lord. And I want to raise my child in your ways and in the light of your love and aware that they can call upon you because you hear. So her husband Elkanah is respectful. He says, I, I trust whatever you want to do. Do what seems best to you. Stay here until you've weaned him. And only may the Lord make good his word. So Elkanah is agreeing to make this sacrifice as well, to let their child be raised in the tutelage of the priesthood and to essentially become a steward and and ultimately a priest in the house of the Lord. So Hannah stays home. She nurses her son. She weans him. So time goes by. And after he was weaned, perhaps two years old or a little older, she takes the boy with her, even though he's still young, and she has a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, so a, a, a certain portion of flour, a skin of wine, like a bottle. And she brings all of these things to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. In fact, you can see a little bit of the communion table that we'll be participating in together next week. Remember, we have one service next week, July 3rd. And all of us, Tagalog and English congregations together at 10.30 a.m. And there we have a little bit of the juice and a little bit of the flour of the bread and we have the communion of the Lord. So she brings this along with the three-year-old bull sacrifice to show that she is in fidelity to the word of the Lord, going to worship with her life and with her son. They sacrifice the bull. They bring the boy to Eli the priest and she says, pardon me, my Lord. You remember me? I'm that woman that you thought was drunk. <laughs> I'm that woman that you prayed for and with. And, and I prayed for this child and the Lord heard and granted my request and here he is. And so, just as I said, because God fulfilled his word to me, I'm fulfilling my word to him and to you. I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. Do you know what power there is in that? For a moment, imagine what your life would be if you, in that kind of totality, gave yourself to God. Do you know what God would do in and through you? You can't imagine. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. The mind of a human being can't conceive all that God has in store. But for anyone who has ever started in that process of just responding to the invitation that Jesus makes when he says, come and follow me, and someone says, I'm going to leave behind the other and follow you, you get swept up in a flow of life that exceeds all of your wildest dreams. I did not achieve all the things that I thought I was going to achieve in my life when I was young in those days when I was depressed. But God has done greater things than that. 
And if it doesn't seem greater to you, I'm not trying to make myself grandiose in your eyes. I want you to know from me, in my heart, God has been good to me and brought about blessing in my life and influence through me that is no result of my own, but is all glory to God. And I am just excited to go further in giving my whole life to God. Now, there are times when I resist and there are times when I struggle and there are times when I fall a little backwards, but God is so faithful. The hand of Christ reaches out to me to pull me back, to lift me up and to lead me on so that I, like Samuel, can worship the Lord wherever I am. And what God does when you give yourself to him is set you free from everything that binds you and open up everything of life that is closed off in you. God delivers. Next week, Pastor Ludi is going to be preaching to us after, out of Luke chapter 4 in his message on freedom, liberation, and liberty. That is where Jesus, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 61, says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to declare release to the captive, sight to the blind. He could as well have said, birth to the barren and the acceptable year of the Lord, a year of jubilee. That's the 50th year. I'm approaching my 50th year. I want the acceptable year of the Lord to be released in my life. So I want all of my life to be held in God's hands. Hannah prays. I'm simply going to read to you the beauty of this poetry transcribed into English, but in its Hebrew roots and origins of this ancient text, you can hear the very living voice of God's spirit speaking through this woman still. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. In other words, God gives me strength. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. In other words, God judges. God puts things into the balance. God makes decisions, and God's decisions are right. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. What she's saying is God writes the imbalances. If you look at the world and you say things are out of whack and things are not rightly balanced and it's not fair, what she's saying is God makes it fair. And those who have been bullies, they are going to be brought to low by God. And those who have been bullied, they are going to be raised up by God. And those who had too much and wouldn't share are going to lose what they have. But those who had nothing, they will receive from God. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the weak. Blessed are those who hear the unbelievable and believe. Because God is faithful. She who was barren has born seven children. The Hebrew number of perfection and divinity. But she has had many has sons that pine away. The Lord brings death and he makes alive. He brings down the grave and raises up. You get the sense of her story in this song, but I want to take you to another song that is similar. Those who oppose the Lord, she goes on to say, will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. She goes beyond what you might expect she is declaring God is going to right the world. He's going to give strength to his king. Now, who is it that is going to anoint kings with the spirit of the Lord? 
Samuel, the very son born to her. Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. I mentioned that there is a connection between Hannah and Mary, and here the connection becomes visible in the most literal sort of way. Look at the song that Mary sings when she comes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, who was an elderly woman and has now conceived a child. She's pregnant, but the child is not yet born. But the child is alive in her womb. And when Elizabeth sees Mary, the child, which is John the Baptist, he will be called, leaps within her womb. And Elizabeth, filled with the Spirit, said, Blessed is she, meaning Mary, who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. In other words, blessed is she who has believed the unbelievable. Blessed is she who has conceived the inconceivable, or rather, that God has conceived the inconceivable in her. And Mary enters then into a song that is clearly patterned after and clearly inspired by the song of Hannah. It's called the Magnificat in tradition because in the Latin version, that's the first word that Mary says, magnificat, which means magnify, which means multiply. It means fruitful. God is fruitful and made me fruitful. My soul magnifies the Lord, glorifies the Lord, declares his fruitfulness. My soul multiplies praise to God and my spirit rejoices in my Savior. He's been mindful of the humble state of his Servant, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. She goes on to reiterate so much of what Hannah has said. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Now, God is not against the rich here. And please don't make the mistake that this is somehow some kind of embedded message of communism in the scriptures. It isn't. What is being said here is those who pride themselves on having it all really don't have a clue about what matters most. And all the treasure that they've piled up where moth eat and rust destroyed is going to be wiped away because from those who have much, it'll be taken away. But to those who have little, it'll be given to them. The last will be first. He's filled the hungry with good things. He's sent the rich away empty. In other words, pride goes before a fall, and here's the fall that's coming. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised. Will you say that phrase? Just as he promised our ancestors. So Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a little boy wearing a linen ephod. He's wearing the little garment of the priesthood, a garment of purity, a garment of dedication. And every year, his mother Hannah goes and, and visits him at the, at the feast times, and she brings him a new robe. She's always making him a new robe. She's always caring for him, clothing him, providing him, loving him with all her heart, but trusting the Lord as well. Sometimes the hardest thing to do as parents is to love our kids and let them live their lives. And the older they get, the harder that may be to, to do. But the more important it is, especially if the love that you have for them, you want to be love as from the Lord. Let your children live. Give them the best of what you have to offer. Give them your wisdom. Clothe them in resource. Pray prayers over them. Entrust them to the Lord, but trust God. God's been patient with you. Be patient with them and trust in God. She makes her sacrifices with her husband, and Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, and he would say, may the Lord give you children by this woman, 
to take the place of the one that she prayed for and gave to the Lord. In other words, she made this sacrifice of covenant and now the priest is saying, may God reward you. And they would go home. And indeed, God did reward. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three more sons and to two daughters. And meanwhile, Samuel was in exactly the place that God intended him to be. Samuel was in Shiloh. Now, what you'll see is Eli, not a very great uh, father figure to Samuel, although he has some very important influence to make. Eli's sons, bad characters, and bad things are in store for them. We'll see more of that as we see this story continue in a couple of weeks. But even when there was no one else there for Samuel, when he was young, he heard the Lord, and he obeyed. He grew up in the presence of the Lord. And it seems to me that the words of the prophet Micah are words that we could hear in the mouth of Hannah, in the mouth of Samuel. And I wonder if you'd put them in your mouth today. And they say this, as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. Say this now, my God will hear me. So let him hear you now. It's the conclusion of the message, but it's an opportunity to let your cry to the Lord be heard. Lift up your heart, even as you bow your head. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes, but let's give ourselves to God in this moment. With respect for the the sacredness of this moment and the opportunity for anyone to pray, I want to pray this prayer over us. And if you at home streaming live or watching this recording, would be willing. I even invite you to bow your head, to close your eyes, to open your heart to God. Because the word of the Lord is speaking to us this morning. And the word is this, I see you. Just hear your name, follow that statement, because Jesus is saying, I see you. And then you fill in your name there because it's his voice saying your name right now. I see you and I know your need. I know your lack. I know the place that is closed up within you that you want to see opened. I know the place that's running wild in you that you want to see restrained. I know the place of lack, and I know how to provide for it. I know the place of confusion, and I know how to guide you through it. I know the darkness that you are in, and I know how to light it up with my light. I know you. I know your need. I even know, says the Lord, I know your complaint against me. I know what you hold against me. I know, I understand, I don't hold it against you. But now, hear me saying to you, you open to me. My hand, says the Lord, is reaching out to you. Will you reach your hand to me? I want to do something in a moment. I'm going to ask everybody to keep their eyes closed and to keep their heads bowed because I want to afford privacy to everyone. But I'm going to ask if you want to make that covenant with God today, whether it is a recommitment where you're saying, I've got something I'm asking of you, Lord, and so I've got something I'm giving you and it's my trust, or whether this may be the first time where you're saying, I want to give my life to you, Jesus because I want this life that's being described. I want this openness. I want this fruitfulness. I want to know my maker. 
then I'm going to ask you to just do this. With every head bowed and every eye closed, will you just raise your hand up to God? Just raise your hand up to God right now, all around the room, and let his spirit hold your hand in his. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in the power of Christ Jesus. The Lord says, I hear your need, and I will answer it. I see your hand, and I take it. I receive your life, and I make it fruitful according to my word. So let it be. Amen. Hallelujah.